Turn with me, please, in your Bible, first of all, to Luke, the 24th chapter. Luke 24, and then we'll turn to John 19. I won't read this whole passage, but I will recite to you the, the context. This is upon the occasion of the resurrection of Christ. And after that occasion, two disciples who had followed him in his preaching and teaching and in his ministry were going home to outside of Jerusalem to the little village of Emmaus. And as they were traversing the path to Emmaus, they were downcast and they were greatly troubled and disappointed and they were obviously in distress and the Lord Jesus appears and joins them probably through supernatural uh, means he shows up alongside them and is walking with them but they don't recognize the supernatural means nor do they know it's Jesus somehow God kept them from under from seeing it just in passing uh, to notice that causes you to stumble there are all kinds of things you're not seeing this morning that are here uh, it, God's doing things all the time people are blind to nothing new about that nothing strange about it uh, but our stupidity I suppose and our blindness you recall how he asked them what's the problem and they said uh, where have you been are you a stranger in these parts have you not heard what's happened in recent days how that there was a prophet in verse 19 mighty in deed and word before God and all the people and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. Now get the tone of their comment. What they're saying is, they're saying it with a cynical turned lip. How the chief priests and our rulers delivered him up and crucified him. Now get that tone. But we hoped that it was he who should redeem Israel. Yea, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things came to pass. Moreover, certain women of our company amazed us, having been early at the tomb, and when they found not his body, they came, saying that they had also seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. And certain of them that were with us went to the tomb and found it even as the women had said, but they did not see him. Now, apparently, these fellows are commenting about all these reports, but they're not settled and they're not happy, and they don't have it working in their own hearts. They've heard the report, they know he died, it frustrated them, it upset them, they've now heard that he's risen, but they don't believe it. It's probable that had they believed it, they would have recognized who this was. They had no idea that he would capably be there. But they've heard the report, they're confused and troubled. Look at his response. This is how we know that they have a problem. And he said unto them, O foolish men, and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Their problem is not that God has not revealed it, but that they have not believed it. Their problem is not external, but slow hearts. They're foolish people, slow of heart to believe. How slow are our hearts? 
to believe all the things spoken by the prophets. Note he didn't say slow of heart to believe in miracles. Slow of heart to believe in the supernatural. But slow of heart to believe the things spoken by the prophets. Then verse 26. Behooved it not the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? In other words, wasn't it appropriate if you knew what the prophet said? Wouldn't you know that he had to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? And then he began to expound the Old Testament scriptures from Moses all the way through the things concerning himself. This one about whom they were perplexed and troubled. Now turn to John chapter 19. Verse 17. You remember that the children of Israel, led by their rulers, these that uh, these two men on the road to Emmaus were talking about when they said our chief priests and rulers, they had just stated these ironic and tragic words to Pilate, we have no king but Caesar. It's interesting that when Matthew Henry was writing a comment on that passage, he said, up until this time, they have yet not had a king but Caesar, since they said those words. Uh, they had, uh, for all those hundreds of years, had no king but Caesar at their request. And then they delivered him up, uh, Pilate delivered him up to them to be crucified. And now we take up our reading with verse 17. They took Jesus, therefore, and he went out bearing the cross for himself under the place called the place of a skull, which is called in Hebrew Golgotha, where they crucified him. And with him two others, on either side one, and Jesus in the midst. And Pilate wrote a title also and put it on the cross. And there was written, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. This title therefore read many of the Jews, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And it was written in Hebrew and in Latin and in Greek. Every language of the civilized world saw the declaration, Jesus of Nazareth. King of the Jews. It's very possible, and many who have excavated and studied the surroundings, it's very possible that hundreds of thousands of people witnessed this thing. It was right beside a road where many people passed by on their way into the festivities and wagged their heads. It was probably not up on the top of the hill, but probably on a flat place. There was a garden where this place was. Uh, they don't even know for sure where Golgotha was. It's very possible that it was not in what is commonly called now Gordon's Calvary, but it was uh, some spot where there was a garden and lots of tombs. Uh, there are spots like that surrounding Jerusalem that have nothing to do with the mountain. Uh, it's, nobody knows for sure, but one thing is sure, lots of people passed by, and if it is in one of the places that some of the excavators have uh, deduced, it was in view of the entire city. 
as you look down off the northern side of Jerusalem. And there would be literally uh, thousands of people who at various times could have looked out and seen these proceedings. But at least uh, giving a hint to the great testimony of Scripture that in every tongue the name of Jesus Christ will be exalted and great. In three languages, Pilate put it up. He didn't want anybody to miss it. The chief priests of the Jews, therefore, in verse 21, said to Pilate, Write not the king of the Jews, but that he said, I'm the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I've written, I've written. And I think you'd have to have quite an imagination to avoid the obvious intent of the Holy Spirit in this passage. Uh, he had to write it. And it's got to stay written because it's true. It, ha it stands. Those words stand in every language in the world and nobody can erase them. Though many have attempted to put them out of their minds, they still stand. What I've written, I've written. The soldiers, therefore, when they had crucified Jesus, took his garments and made four parts. To every soldier apart. Now it's probable that these were four separate pieces of clothing. Some have conjectured perhaps the sandals, the headpiece, the outer garment of the upper body, and the lower, uh, what we would call breeches, but the skirt, the lower part. Four parts divided to each soldier. And also the coat. Now the coat was the tunic that was next to the body. It was inside and worn next to the skin. Now the coat was without seam, woven from the top throughout. They said therefore one to another, let us not rend it, but cast lots for it, whose it shall be, that the scripture might be fulfilled, which says, they parted my garments among them, and upon my vesture did they cast lots. These things therefore the soldiers did. It's as though John is saying, I was standing there, I know this is what they did. I watched them. These things, therefore, they actually really did. But there were standing by the cross of Jesus, his mother, and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. Now, it's probable that this includes four women. His mother, Mary his mother's sister, unnamed in this passage, and some have thought that to mean that it was John's mother. And there are reasons to believe that may well be the case, and it would be in keeping with this gospel that John never mentions the name of any of his family members, including himself. Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciple standing by whom he loved, probably again John, unnamed, he says to his mother, Woman, behold thy son. And he's not talking about himself. He's talking about John. Then says he to that disciple, Behold thy mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her unto his own home. One writer has said, How ludicrous to assume from this kind of passage that Mary is uh, to be the mother of anybody's faith. When in this case, she was had, had to go home to a disciple and be cared for by him. That's a far cry from the picture that's been painted by, in some portions of history as her exalted above humanity. Another beautiful part of this, though, in the midst of his sufferings, look what he's doing. What an example to us. He's taking care of his mother. 
He's seeing to his earthly affairs that he leaves behind him are not being unfinished. This is his last will and testament. His clothing goes to some gamblers. He sees to it that his mother's cared for. He takes care of all his business. Outstanding example to you men. Don't go to your death having not prepared for those that you're responsible for after you die. Do the best you can. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things are now finished, that the scripture might be accomplished, says, I thirst. And it's typical of these gospel writers often to put it in the present tense. They're, they're, they're painting a picture. John is writing at the end of the first century about something that happened some 60 years before, and he's using the present tense. He's saying, and now he does this, and now he does this, and now look and see this. And he brings it to, to that dramatic picture before your eyes. And that's the way we ought to try to see it. He says, I thirst, in fulfillment of the prophetic utterance of Psalm 69. There was set there a vessel full of vinegar. So they put a sponge full of the vinegar on hyssop, on some sort of a, of a, uh, uh, a plant that had a long enough stalk that they could hold it up to him. And they brought it to his mouth. When Jesus therefore had received the vinegar, and what this really was, was a cheap wine. And it was always present at a crucifixion because of the thirst that was brought about by a crucifixion. And they would have it in a container near the cross, and they would bring it and offer it to the dying victim. They brought it to his mouth. When he had therefore received this cheap wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. He breathed out his life. Again, please join me as we pray. <clears throat> Our Father, we are unable and unworthy to handle this material. We would hide ourselves and allow the text to speak for itself. We would desire, O oh Lord, that we not get in the way and that in our effort to open it up, we not obscure it. But we are conscious of two things. You have assigned to us the responsibility of expounding your word. For your own wise reasons, you have placed this treasure in earthen vessels. And we're also aware, O oh Lord, that you are able to use such vessels by the power of your Spirit to make these things precious to our hearts. We're aware as well that unless your spirit comes, all our efforts, all of our best, even if we could be eloquent, would fall to the ground. So we ask you, our Father, who delivered up your Son to save us from our sins because you love us, withhold not the Spirit of grace from us, but pour out upon this congregation in this hour your spirit to translate, to interpret, to deal with our hearts and to make these things true.
true to us. Lord, open our hearts the way you opened Lydia's heart to believe the gospel. For those of us that do believe it, make us to believe it all the more and forgive our unbelief and help it. For those that have never in the heart looked upon the face of Jesus Christ by faith and loved him, grant unto them, we pray, faith to believe and be saved. We know, O Lord, in history that there were times when a whole congregation of people met to hear preaching and one would enter unbeknownst to the crowd and one soul of the multitude would hear the word of Christ and be delivered from the wrath to come and freed. We love to hear the story of your servant Charles Spurgeon, how as a young boy he was saved in an old Methodist church without any plan of his or plan of man. We pray that today someone who had no intention of meeting God here may meet you. O Lord, come and display your grace and power in our hearts today. Give grace to the preacher and to the hearer for the sake of Christ our Redeemer. Amen. Amen. What I want to do this morning is very simple. I want, in a very basic way, to survey with you the sufferings of the Lord Jesus Christ. It behooved him to suffer and therefore to enter his glory. And I want us to survey the suffering. And then I want us to consider the significance of those sufferings. It's easy to read what we've read, pass over it either as mythical religion or superstition or a nice interesting story or even as a very pitiful account and still miss the significance of what occurred. In fact, if all you read was the 19th chapter of John, you would probably not read enough there to explain to you the significance of what went on. We who are saints read it, and we know all sorts of significance, but it's because we know the rest of our Bible. We know what these events meant because we're familiar with what they meant by the instruction attached to them in the apostolic epistles, in the prophets, in the rest of the scriptures. But if you didn't know the rest of your Bible, if the only Bible you knew was the one you'd picked up once in a while as a child or heard very rarely in the churches of our day, you would not comprehend the significance of these events. You might well stumble over them or misinterpret them and misapply them. And so I want us to consider the significance of the sufferings of Jesus Christ. And you say, well, I thought this was the day of resurrection. Why do you want to talk about suffering? Because the resurrection means utterly nothing apart from suffering. And apart from the death of Christ, the resurrection wouldn't even exist, much less have any meaning. And it's to the end of the significance of his sufferings that we then can declare the significance of his resurrection and how it applies to us. My prayer is that some of you who are not saved and are still under the wrath of God may today for the first time in your life understand in your heart what Christ did at Calvary nearly 2,000 years ago and see yourself in relation to his death and his resurrection.
everyone stands in relation to Christ. Everyone born in this world stands in some relation to Christ. You either stand in relation to him as one redeemed by his blood and delivered by his life, or as one under condemnation because you have not believed upon the name of the only begotten Son of God. There's nothing more vital, nothing more critical, nothing more important to your life than this issue. Everyone in this place today must someday and probably soon, even soon by our reckoning, give account to God for what you've done with Jesus Christ. For that reason, we survey the sufferings of Christ and set forth the biblical significance, or at least some of the significance of these sufferings, then to draw some conclusions built around his resurrection. First of all, then, survey with me the sufferings of Christ. We've already seen and considered the grief that was brought upon him by the betrayal of Judas Iscariot and the denial of one of his inner circle of the apostles, Simon Peter. We have considered to some degree the shame and the indignity that he suffered in his arrest albeit an illegal arrest. We've also considered the abuse that he suffered by the mouth of the high priest and by the rod of his servant and by the officers who arrested him. But now notice further his sufferings. First of all, there's a treatment that the Lord received at the hands of these heathen soldiers. Verse 23. The soldiers, therefore, when they had crucified Jesus, took his garments and made four parts, etc. We are told in this passage that while he hanged on the, or hung on the cross, he watched gamblers casting lots over his clothing, as though to rub it in. On either side he has criminals being crucified with him. He is not sitting on a taller cross, dear brethren. There's no halo coming from his cross. There's nothing about the, the cross itself that day that to the physical eye would make him look any different from a common crook. In fact, it was a large part of the suffering that the multitudes of people who passed by saw nothing more than a criminal getting his just due. And they wagged their heads at such a poor, pitiful case. Some who knew about his, his reputation saw him as suffering as a criminal and as a little off because he claimed to be so much more. But at best, he was a criminal, accompanied criminal in his death, nailed up with lawbreakers. What a shame. The lawgiver, punished by his own law's demands as a lawbreaker. But turn back to the early part of chapter 19, which we didn't read today but read last time. Verse 1 says, Pilate therefore took Jesus and scourged him. And the soldiers planted a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple garment. And they came to him. This literally means they kept on coming one after the other. That's the language of this verb. And said, Hail, King of the Jews. And they struck him with their hands. We're told in another passage they bowed. So they would come one at a time maybe two at a time, one after the other, 
continually repeating it. They would fall on their knees in front of him, bow in front of him, do mock worship, strike him, spit on him, and mock him. Now, it doesn't suggest here about the spitting, but we find that in other accounts in the other Gospels. They put a crown of thorns on his head. They arrayed him in purple garments. They put him up like a king. They put a reed in his hand. They struck him. They spit on him. And they said, Hail, King of the Jews. You can just imagine the tone of these words. And put yourself in that situation and got the picture in your mind of how they were treating him. Now notice what he suffered. These vain and worldly men, no doubt typical, rough, foul-mouthed soldiers were allowed to abuse the Lamb of God physically, verbally, and psychologically. Before you look at that, though, look at what condition he was in when they came. Verse 1 tells us Pilate scourged him. You know what that scourging is? Well, there are two different possible ways that they scourged him. One, they would get rods and beat on his back until they broke through. Another and more popular was a whip that had several thongs connected to it. And in each thong, they were embedded, they were loaded with pieces of metal and bone. And as they would lash the whip on his flesh, these pieces of metal and bone in these multiplied songs would rip through and tear through the flesh. As one man who understands the history of this punishment stated, they could make pulp of a man's back. Some have said to have been flayed to the bone, torn down to the deep seated veins and arteries and in some cases history bears out that their very entrails and organs were exposed to sight by the whipping this is what the soldiers were bowing before now here's what they see they see this mutilated man pummeled and they mock him as a king you see why you see the point they're using the sarcasm. This is a king. Look at this king. Hail, king of the Jews. Look at you now. You see the shape you're in now. So you've been whipped. We know not how much. We know not how deep. But we doubt not that he was greatly punished physically. Greatly suffering. And then these guys come and add poor salt in his wounds by dressing him up like a king putting a crown of thorns on his head, giving him a reed for a scepter, and mocking him. Now note something in this account. Everything I just told you in description is left out by the apostle. In fact, if you read the Gospels, not one of them describe these physical torments. They say, he scourged him. They mocked him. They spit on him. In one case, they pluck out a beard. They strike him. But they don't go into the gory details of the result. They never describe his look. They never describe his flesh. They don't do anything like that. Why? Why don't they? Well, that's a part of where we're headed today. 
because the significance of his sufferings have to do with something completely different. And the writers of the gospel are not in the mood under the Spirit's influence to cause us to give more attention to the shape of his body and the open wounds of his flesh than they are to the significance lying behind those sufferings. The intent of the gospel writers is to point us to the spiritual significance that goes behind this rather than to have us make big to-do over all the physical pain and the description. Much of the art of the so-called Christian world misses this principle. In attempting to draw out sympathy for the suffering flesh, they miss the saving of the soul. Now, some cover over the sufferings altogether in painting as some sort of a, of a halo-covered uh, fairy. The apostles do not ignore the sufferings. They leave it up to us to think through and imagine and figure out what it must have been like, but they don't make a big deal of it simply says Pilate scourged him. No attempt is made to play on our emotions or to over-dramatize this. The divine, sublime simplicity strikes me every time I read, especially John. He just, one word, and you, volumes are spoken. He scourged him. Pilate did this probably to suffice the mob so he could release the man to them to expose this king to such sorry treatment that would prove his unkingliness and his lack of threat to the Jews. Now he can bring him out. I've beaten him. Look at him. There's no way this guy is going to be a threat to anybody. He's no king. I'm going to release him to you. This is what Pilate was doing. If you read all the Gospels, you'll see Pilate scourged him and intended to release him. He thought the scourging would satisfy them. He had no conception about how angry they were against him and how committed they were of putting him to death. And so Pilate is giving this scourging as a way of placating their anger. He figures this will do it. And if anything else, it'll at least show them that this pitiful creature cannot possibly be a threat to them. Surely their mercy will not want anything more done than this. Crucifixion will be a lot of trouble and there's no need for it. This guy's not guilty, but I'll thank him as though he is a little bit and then maybe we'll satisfy everybody. You can again see Pilate's double-mindedness and the character of the man. If he really had a sense of justice, he wouldn't have laid a mark on him. But he's willing to punish him as far as he can, as far as he needs to, to satisfy the crowd. But he's hoping to use that as sort of a negotiating. It's like plea bargaining. A principle that for the life of me still, brethren, I can't stand. The principle behind that just bugs me. I just don't understand it. But Pilate didn't figure that these people's hate was as far as it did, and it did not suffice them to see this body mutilated. But know what the soldiers did. With this mutilated body, they placed a Stephanos, a wreath of victory on his head. This crown is what they would give someone who just won in the games. And they would put this wreath on. But they put this wreath upon him of thorns. Do you ever think of the significance of that? Not just a mock crown. Do you remember the origin of thorns? Remember when thorns started growing in the world? In the garden, it was pronounced that the ground was cursed because of man's sin. And it would bring forth thorns and thistles. 
what is placed upon the head of our great substitute but the curse and its fruit and its consequences he became a curse for us how beautiful and how wonderful is all of God's sovereign plan and arrangement so that these ignorant heathen put upon the Lord Jesus this fruit of the curse as a symbolic expression that upon his head God placed the curse that we bore so that he might bear it in our place mockery pain purple garments note the humiliation surely according to the scriptures we did esteem him smitten a man of sorrow acquainted with grief could you ever expect to describe him in any other way in this picture acquainted with grief I do not believe that that passage in Isaiah should be interpreted to mean that Jesus spent every day of his life with a somber look on his face I do not believe that there are other prophecies of the Old Testament that the Bible says are fulfilled in one moment in the New. In one moment, a whole prophecy of the Old Testament converges and is fulfilled. This one, I believe, is the supreme fulfillment of that prophecy. That is a prophecy pointing to his saving sufferings. Not to every moment of his life. I don't think Jesus went to the wedding at Cana with a sour face. I don't think he put wine into those barrels and walked around moping. I don't think he felt the, it, it was obligatory upon him everywhere he went to a party to impose upon it this sad figure. Oh, don't you know I have to fulfill scripture and be sad? It's not right to have fun. Can you imagine children jumping on the lap of somebody like that and feeling comfortable with it? That's not the point. The point of that prophecy is this passage we've read. This man in this state is acquainted with grief. A man of sorrow. He has imposed upon him the full grief of the sin of his people. No wonder the children of Israel had difficulty with this figure. They hailed him as king. They kept on striking him. They kept coming. And some, according to Matthew 26, they struck him blindfolded and said, Tell us who hit you. If you're really the son of God. I think those were the officers of uh, the high priests who did that. They gambled for his tunic. They took off his clothes, and when they took him to the cross, he was left naked. We don't know whether there was a loincloth or not. That's debated. But whether there was or not, you put yourself in that place. Where in full public view, you're clothed ripped off of you and sold at gambling at your feet here is Christ dying for gamblers watching them gamble here is Christ dying for the curse with the fruit of the curse sitting embedded into his bleeding brow we'll not mention the crowds that passed by wagging their head saying this man saved others let him save himself. If he's the son of God, let him come down off the cross. Then we'll believe him. We'll not describe in detail his torn flesh, his torn heart, his bruised cheeks, because it's probable that when they smote him on the cheek, they did it with fists or with rods. His bleeding brow, his shamed person, 
We'll not describe it because John doesn't. The Gospels don't focus on it. Why? Because of the significance of his suffering. And that leads us to the primary consideration of our meditation. The more significant sufferings of the Lord Jesus Christ are spiritual, not physical. Not that he didn't suffer physically. As a man, he suffered as a man. But he suffered spiritually. And the significance of these sufferings in nature and purpose are what are most important. We could describe these sufferings physically, as one writer has said. He calls the crucifixion the acme of the torturer's art. Nothing, he says, could be more horrible than the sight of this living body, breathing, seeing, hearing, still able to feel, and yet reduced to the state of a corpse by forced immobility and absolute helplessness. We cannot even say that the crucified person writhed in agony, for it was impossible for him to move. Stripped of his clothing, unable even to brush away the flies which fell on his wounded flesh, already lacerated by the preliminary scourging, exposed to the insults and curses of people who can always find some sickening pleasure in the sight of the torture of others. The cross represented miserable humanity, reduced to the last degree of impotent suffering and degradation. Certain death, distilled slowly, drop by drop, an ideal form of torture. No wonder the Jews couldn't believe this to be their king. Who would? Those who see by faith. Those who understand spiritually. Those who know God. They see king here. The gospel writers omit such descriptions entirely. They simply say they crucified him. The world this morning sees Jesus Christ perhaps as a martyr, a poor victim of injustice. Much of what's been done in the civil rights movement in this country has perverted the gospel and made it into a carnal expression of human injustice alone and have taken all the redemptive power out of it. Dear brethren, I'm not saying that it's because I'm opposed to putting things right in race relations. That's not the reason I say it. But it is a shame for a man who calls himself a reverend to leave out the significance of the sufferings of Christ and then use the carnal aspects of those sufferings for his own political agenda. And some of these men, whatever the color of their face, will stand before the judge of the universe one day and give severe account for such abuse. Some see him merely as a miserable sufferer. But those of us who gather here today on Easter Sunday, those of us who gather here every day, every first day of the week, you know why we do gather every first day of the week, don't you? It's because we believe the Lord Jesus rose from the dead on the first day of the week. And we delight to start our week with a public declaration of the living Savior. We rejoice in worshiping at the feet of him whose resurrection has secured our deliverance from our sins. We are glad to give testimony to Christ every first day of the week without fail. We grieve when we can't get there. 
We fight through obstacles to be at God's house Sunday morning to give declaration to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And I say this to you. You cannot honor Easter Sunday if you've omitted the other 51. If you didn't mean last Sunday what you mean this Sunday, then you don't mean this Sunday what you ought to mean. If you will not next Sunday do what you did this Sunday, this Sunday didn't count. You understand what I mean by that? I mean the resurrection of Christ predominates every day of the year. Every week starts with it. For those of us who know the gospel and have found our salvation there. We come here rejoicing, giving praise to God, clothed with fear and thanksgiving, awe and peace. We're not followers of a weak man. We're not followers of a misguided man willing to die in order to make a political statement or to set an example. The spirit with which the Lord Jesus bore his sufferings is indeed our example in our sufferings. But the central purpose of his sufferings are not exemplary mainly, but redemptive. Christ died on purpose to save sinners from their sins. These sufferings were willingly endured. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 2. Sometimes I get great comfort preaching these things because of all the opposition I get trying to preach it. When I start preparing sermons on the gospel, the simple gospel, is some of the times the hardest weeks I have. It's some of the hardest sermon preparation I ever do. I, I got to Saturday night this week and it just, it was, I was like I was hitting a brick wall. So simple, so clear, so lovely. I have no trouble. If I was chatting with you over your coffee table, I'd be at liberty and I would enjoy just, just having, just loving this stuff. I'd like to do that more than we do it. But trying to put it together in the sermon really bugs me and bothers me and it's hard to do sometimes. And then the devil has his way of fighting against it, both in the preparation and in the delivery. That tells me it's good stuff to preach. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 9. We behold him who has been made a little lower than the angels, even Jesus because of the suffering of death crowned with glory and honor notice because of the suffering he's crowned you see the connection between his sufferings and his glory that by the grace of God he should taste of death for every literally every every one but the word man is not in the original what he's saying is those for whom he died he tasted their death for them in their place. He partook of their death. He died their death. He substituted himself for them. For it became him for whom are all things and through whom are all things, namely God, in bringing many sons unto glory to make the author of their salvation perfect through suffering. In other words, for Jesus to fulfill his saving purpose, he had to suffer. He could not be perfected in his saving work apart from suffering. It became God to make the Savior perfect in his saving through sufferings. 
For both he that sanctifies and they that are sanctified are all of one. God sanctifies, we are sanctified, or Christ sanctifies, we are sanctified, and we're all of God. All of this is the work of God. For which cause he, Christ, is not ashamed to call them brethren. We're his brothers, and he's not ashamed to call us that. Saying, I will declare thy name to my brethren. In the midst of the congregation will I sing thy praise. And again, I'll put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children whom God has given me. Since then the children are sharers in flesh and blood, he also himself in like manner partook of the same. Why did he partake of the flesh and blood? Why was Christ incarnate? Why was Jesus born? That through death he might bring to naught him that had the power of death, that is the devil, and might deliver all them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. He was born in flesh and blood so that he could die and in dying deliver those who feared death, who were under the bondage of the devil, who by his temptation brought us into sin against the law of God and therefore under the condemnation of that law. Now turn over with me to Hebrews chapter 5, verse 8. And I'll show you something about these sufferings. And the reason this is so vital is because much of the world this morning still views Jesus as a victim. A victim of injustice, a victim of Satan, a victim of God, a victim of something. I never see that used in relation to Christ in the Bible. In one sense, yes, he's a victim of the cunning of ruthless men. But he's a victim on his own terms. He's not the victim of a quirk of fate. He's not the victim of providence. He's the one that ordained it. And verse 8 of chapter 5 of Hebrews tells us, Though he was a son, you see who he really was, he was the son of God, yet learned obedience. What does that mean? That there were things Jesus didn't know and he had to be taught them and he went to class? No, it means he experienced what it means to submit one to the will of the, of the law of God and to obey it. He entered in to flesh and blood as a man in order to obey the rule and the law of God. He learned obedience. But note what it says further, by the things which he suffered. Perfect obedience included and required suffering. In other words, in order to obey his father, he had to die. He was sent to die. This commandment have I of my Father. I lay my life down for the sheep. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. And takes it from me. I lay it down of my own accord. This commandment I have of my Father. What he did in his sufferings 
was nothing more than obedience. You understand what I'm saying? What the scriptures are telling us. These sufferings are not accidental. Nor are they a twist of an unrighteous world. Nor are they a shameful display of the inhumanity of man to man. It is that, but that's not the significance. It is the act of a son who put himself in the place of submission, became a servant, and in the words of Philippians 2, became obedient unto death. His sufferings were self-imposed as well as imposed by his father. Do you understand what we're saying? He is suffering willingly, voluntarily, in complete control as one who is doing it in obedience to the Father's commandment to go save his people. It was appropriate and demanded of him that he become a man, flesh and blood. Because he had to deliver flesh and blood from their death and from the fear of death. So he obediently took a body. Sacrifice and offering thou wouldest not, but a body thou hast prepared to me. I delight to do thy will, O God. So he took a body. He became of no reputation. He was rich. For our sakes he became poor. And not only that, he walked among us bearing our load and was tempted in all ways like as we are tempted, yet without sin. He has known the temptation of anxiety. He has known the demands of a starving body that could turn stones to bread and thereby break God's law and abuse his power. He has known the temptation to greed and worldly lusts and pleasure and discouragement and doubt and friends turning on him and things not working out well as multitudes quit following him and thereby insulted his success as a preacher. He's known all that because he submitted himself to obedience. He learned obedience through suffering. He became by experience obedient. And that obedience was a path of suffering. It was through sufferings that he was able to obey. Had he not suffered, he would have been disobedient. Now what I'm trying to show you is that there's purpose in his suffering. Saving purpose. Not accident, but purpose. He carried out these events, every last one of them on his own terms. We keep reading that the scriptures might be fulfilled. I thirst. Even the parting of his garments by a rabble of gamblers was a fulfillment of scripture. They didn't break his bones. The Jews said, just get this guy off the cross before sundown at six o'clock because the high Sabbath is coming. The Sabbath that comes in the midst of the Passover. And this is a high Sabbath. And any Sabbath we wouldn't have anybody hanging out on the tree this time of night when the Sabbath begins at 6 p.m. Get him off. But in order to kill him, we're going to have to do something. So they went to the soldiers and said, break his legs, get him off the cross, finish this thing. We've got our Sabbath to honor. And the soldiers went and they broke the legs of the two thieves on either side. 
which was the practice common if they wanted to speed up the process of crucifixion. It both set them into shock, and some believe that what it did, it made them no longer able to push up on, uh, with their legs to relieve the pressure that was continually putting down on their pectorals and their chest, and therefore relieve some of the suffering and get deep breaths, and it just hastened the inevitable. So they came to Jesus, and he was already dead. Why was he already dead? Not because he had already been suffered a lot and flashed a lot. He said, it is finished. And he breathed out his spirit. He gave up. He donated his spirit. That's what the word means. It doesn't mean he expired in the sense of he breathed his last though he was trying not to this is not somebody taking the breath from him this is the Lord breathing out his spirit and giving it up into the Father's hands into thy hands I commend my you you, you tell me that you're going to be able to decide the moment you're going to die I saw a movie one time of an old Indian who decided to go die the Indians like to die like that and he took him out set him up on his place and he lay down and he died but he didn't die. He tried his best to die. He breathed and he said his last farewells and all of his little religious mumbo-jumbo and little drop of rain dropped on his eyelid. He woke up and, and he asked, first question he asked, am I still in this world? It was a very funny scene. Men don't decide when the moment they're going to die. Jesus said, it is finished. Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. And he did it. How did he do that? Why did he do that? What's the significance of that? Because unlike the death of everybody else in the world, the Lord Jesus Christ died on purpose. And what I mean by on purpose, he died, he willed his own death because he came to save his people from their sins. His kingdom, though unnoticed by most men, is indeed a kingdom. You see, you look at this and you wonder, how can this be king? How could I worship such a one? And you do need to get a feel for his suffering. You do need to understand that in order to save you from sin, you had to have someone suffer. You need to comprehend that for God to punish your sin, somebody has to suffer and die. The law of God demands death for sin. The soul that sinneth, it shall die. Adam and Eve died for one bite of one piece of fruit in one garden one time. And all the human race in Adam died that day and brought into the world all this stuff that frustrates you and me. Every bit of it. Every bit of it. You frustrated? Does it bother you sometimes that people still die? You're dying. You're going to die. Does it bother you that people get sick and disrupt your life and cost a lot of money? Does it bother you that people aren't happy, that people fight, that wars go on, that we can't seem to get it settled? You would think that we would have stopped wars eventually by now, wouldn't you? You'd think the atomic bomb would have stopped this stuff, wouldn't you? Didn't, did it? Frustrating, isn't it? The whole world has been subjected to vanity and frustration, corruption. 
We're all frustrated with it. We groan together till now. We're waiting for deliverance. The whole universe. We have a wonderful big old dog. And we love that dog. And she's so good to our kids. And we're never going to be able to replace that dog. She cost us $20. You know what? We think about it a lot, increasingly. She's going to die. We may have to help remove her suffering with a veterinarian's assistance someday. We, we know that's going to be a sad day. It's going to be a hard day. A dog. Did you know she wasn't originally supposed to die? Sin did that. That thing that goes out and stays within 12 or 15 feet of our kids when they play, one day is going to turn back to dirt and rot and be a very unappealing thing. All the pantings are going to stop. It's going to die. So are you. All the decoration you did for your body this morning to present it to us, not going to look that way someday. The funeral director will paint you up and we won't see it. I'm not so sure we shouldn't. I still wonder about that. I still wonder about whether we ought to see some of the fruits of death setting in. You won't see it, but you know what's going on. And if you let yourself think about it and, and understand what's happening under that ground, you're going to know what's happening to your body. That's sin's fruit. But worse than that, you died by being separated from the fellowship and the favor of God. And that's the worst death. That's death, death. In the day that you eat thereof, you shall surely die. And they died that day. Though they continued to walk around in their body for several hundred years later, they died that day. No other way to describe hiding from their maker in a garden, in the trees, pretending that they don't owe him accountability, hoping they can put off the inevitable. But the Lord Jesus Christ doesn't look like a king in his mutilated dying state. And yet Daniel tells us that his kingdom is going to be a kingdom that lasts forever, unrivaled. It's going to swallow up all the kingdoms of the world. So then in the Revelation we read the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and his Christ. Where do you see it? We read how that Jesus casting out demons speaks of having bound the strong man and possessed his goods and spoiled them. How can he do it if he doesn't, isn't stronger than the strong man? He's speaking of coming into the devil's territory. The devil who had the power of death. And he comes into the devil's house, but he first binds the devil. How can he bind him if he's not bigger than the devil? And he binds him. And he says, if I, by the Spirit of God, cast out demons, then the kingdom of God is upon you. The world doesn't see it. What I've written, I've written, Pilate said. There's a king here. His kingdom is not of this world. That's why we don't focus on the physical aspects of suffering. We focus on the significance. This was God establishing the kingdom of Jesus Christ. This dying behooved him so that he might also enter his glory. Behooved it not Messiah to suffer and enter his glory? He finished it. He gave up the spirit. He breathed his death. He willingly died. Brethren, guess that in your head. Christ died at the moment he wanted to die. There's two facts that need to be seen to support that statement. 
The first is, according to the scripture, this act of Christ was an act of an offering. This was not a priest among men offering up another man as an offering to God. No human being on this world could make an offering to God acceptable except Jesus Christ. There is one God. There is one mediator between God and man. The man Christ Jesus. No man can offer anything up to God that will get God to accept it. Only Christ was able to make an offering acceptable. And only the offering he made was acceptable, which was himself. And he made it once, never to be repeated. From then on, we offer up thanksgiving for the finished offering. That's all. And that's all God will accept. We don't lift up bread and wine, make a magic prayer over it, and ask God to receive the offering of the body of Christ that we're making. We didn't make it. He made it. Nothing plainer in the scripture than that Jesus Christ was making an offering when he died. He said it is finished. What did he mean it is finished? What? His 33 years? That's true. But that's not, is that what he meant? If. What a big word. If. Two chapters previously in his prayer he says, I have accomplished the work which you gave me to do. It is finished. He comprehended that he has completed his course. Oh, what a blessed hour that was for the Savior. Have you ever, have you ever looked at those words, he bowed his head and gave up the ghost? You know what that word, phrase is? It's the same phrase he uses in the Gospels when he says, the Son of Man has not a place to lay his head. Same words. You know what he's meaning? Meaning he went to bed. He finished his day's work and he's now lying down to rest from his finished work. That's the picture. It is finished. I'm going to sleep. I've finished my work. I've entered my rest. Jesus Christ entered his own Sabbath rest from his own finished work. I personally believe there's something of that in Hebrews chapter 4 describing him who has entered his rest so that we are to enter that rest with him. I personally think that's one of the arguments for the Lord's Day, the first day of the week, in which there's still a Sabbath-keeping for the people of God as we enter the rest that was purchased by Christ that he entered when he finished his saving work. Just as God finished his creating work and rested, Jesus finished his recreating work and rested. He bowed his head, gave up his spirit, died in peace. already dead when they came to break his legs. They didn't have to kill him as they did the other two. He was already dead. Now, that's the first thing. The offering, the fact that this is an offering that he makes to God, an offering on behalf of sinners, an offering as, may we say it, a sinner. He didn't sin, but he presented himself to the Father 
as though he had. All that he had to present was sin. He became sin for us. Our guilt, our liability, our sins were laid on him. His righteousness, his obedience, his liberty was laid on us. He stripped naked. We clothed in his robes of righteousness. And when he laid his life down, he laid it down as an offering for the sins that rested upon his brow and upon his back and that weighed upon his heart the sins of all his people in all ages. And all of those sins, he died for them, under them, because of them. And he appeased the wrath of God in so doing. He made an offering for sins. He's the high priest, Hebrews tells us, whose duty is to make offerings for sin. But the second word that will drive home the point of this purposeful death, the significance of his sufferings, not just offering, but resurrection. You see, when God raised him from the dead, that puts a stamp on this thing. Quickly turn with me as we hasten to come to a conclusion to Acts chapter 2. I don't like to keep you later than you're expected to stay. But I certainly don't like to quit before I expect it to end. I hope that you bear with me. I'd like to think someday somebody's going to get saved about 12.15. I wouldn't use that as an excuse to preach too long. But that's really behind my motive to go ahead and make you endure it. I don't know what you had planned anyway. I hope I didn't be insulted. I wasn't insulting to you. Acts chapter 2 verse 22. You men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God to you by mighty works and wonders and signs which God did by him in the midst of you, even as you yourselves know. Remember Peter's bearing witness. He's saying, you folks saw all this. You're no stranger to what this man did. Him being delivered up by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. No accident. Perfectly in God's plan. You, by the hand of lawless men, did crucify and slay. As to their liability and guilt, they killed him. As to the intent, he laid his own life down. You see the difference? Their purpose, they're guilty of murder. But they're not the ones that took his life away. He died. But verse verse 24. Whom God raised up, having loosed the pangs of death. Why? Because it was not possible that he should be held by it. It was not possible that he should be held by death. What does he mean? Well, turn to John chapter 20. Quickly. Verse 9. account of Peter and John running to the tomb and looking in and seeing the body missing. And when the second disciple went in and saw it, he believed. In verse 9 of chapter 20 says, For as yet they knew not the scripture that he must rise from the dead. 
That's what the Bible's talking about in Acts 2 when it says it couldn't hold him. He must rise from the dead. He has to. Now that word must usually means an absolute moral imperative. There's no other way. He must rise from the dead. It was impossible for death to hold him. Why was that? Why was it impossible for death to hold him? What a lovely thought. Because his death took care of sin and sin could no longer hold that he broke its power the significance of his death is that it satisfied the work of redemption it paid the penalty for his people's sins it appeased the wrath of God I wish I had time to preach the sermon I heard from Pastor Nichols last Sunday night in Webster but I'm going to give you a little bit of thumbnail because it's a part of the gospel you know what the wrath of God is? It's God's resolute, seated anger and hatred of your sin. And it's something you cannot bear. And if it's laid out upon you in its full, unmitigated brunt, you'll perish. And you'll suffer the burning wrath of God in the flames of hell forever and ever, and there'll be no escape. And you won't be able to bear it, but you will bear it. It's an unspeakable torment. And it's going to come upon everyone who doesn't believe on Christ. Everyone. And it doesn't follow it. But you know what the word propitiation means in the New Testament? It says in Romans 3, Jesus was, is our propitiation. It means to pacify the wrath of God. To appease it. To satisfy it. As though it's allowing the wrath of God to drink up the dregs and be satiated. There's nothing else left to drink. The wrath of God has its eyes set on all sin. And the wrath of God is depicted in Scripture like a hungry lion stalking about to devour and nobody can help the victim. Jesus Christ on the cross for his people's sin appeased that hungry lion and that lion ate until he ate all of his victim. And he had nothing else that he needed or wanted. The wrath of God directed toward the sins of all his people was put to rest by our propitiation. It's the same word that's used in the story of Haman and Mordecai. When Haman was caught by Esther and pointed out to the king, and Haman had brought the king's wrath down upon his head, having been plotting to kill the Jews, and the king, for Esther's sake, was so angry and then caught Haman on his bedchamber on the couch next to the queen trying to placate her. And the king came out of the back room and saw it and went crazy with wrath and couldn't believe that this man who was already under his liability was now going to play around with his wife behind his back. And the king could hardly know what to do with his anger. And a man standing by said, Hey, there are gallows out in the street that Haman built to kill the Mordecai. Let's put him on those. And the king said, Do it. And they hanged him. And then it says, And the king's wrath was satisfied, was propitiated, was appeased. Same word. He's not mad anymore. He's, he's drunk up the devouring demands of his wrath. That's what Jesus did on the cross. You understand what the significance of that is? Once our sins had been punished 
and the wrath of God against our high treason had been put to rest, death could no longer hold him, nor those who are in him. There can be no more death. That's how he delivered us from the fear of death. Our bodies will return to dust, but we will rise from that dust in Him. You see, the resurrection is what proves the significance of the death. Had He not risen from the dead, you're still in your sins. Your faith is vain. Our preaching is vain. We're false witnesses of God. It's all vain. But He did rise from the dead. He was delivered up for our offenses and raised for our justification. You see, when you put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and rest your case on His shoulders and lay all your burdens on Him and cast all your care on Him and put your life in the position that if Jesus fails to keep His word, you have nothing. That's what faith in Christ includes. That you hold nothing back as a second possibility in case God doesn't come through for you. You forsake all of it to have Him. You give all that up to make sure you get Christ. You cannot have Him if you keep some of that. You can't have Him. And when your faith has been planted and rested on Christ and you look to Him, when you get up in the morning and say, Lord, I'm a sinner, but I'm trusting you. You made me hope by your word. Remember your word to your servant. When you've done that, when you've turned your back on the hope that this world will ever satisfy anything for you, and you've given yourself to Christ, and all His word is all you trust. That faith is vindicated and justified by His resurrection from the dead. You may rest assured that faith is not in vain. Our preaching is not in vain. We need not be ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believes. Dear brethren, my dear unsaved friend, Jesus died to save sinners from the wrath of God. And Jesus was raised from the dead to strongly give give potential to their hope and to undergird their confidence and deliver them from the fear of death. Where do you stand in relation to that death? What is its significance to you? There's two people I want to address. I want to address you who when you came this morning and frequently look at yourself and find yourself wanting. And you say, I hardly even believe I, I look at these passages and nothing happens. I'm dull, I'm tired, I'm weary. The Bible becomes a bore to me often. My devotionals, I get out of the habit. I, they get dull and cold and dry. And I don't, I hardly believe any of it. But I want to address you, some of you. Some of you get into that state and you forget what it's like to be outside of this place. For all those people that don't even know there's a resurrection not to believe in. Who don't even know that there's a heart to be dealt with. Who don't even have a thought that there's anything wrong in their life except what other people are causing them. 
The only problem they ever have is what the other people are causing them. If they could just get rid of all these other people and straighten up, get the world to do what they want, they'd be happy. But see, you have a battle on your hands because you're cognizant of truth that you hardly believe. You're grieved because you hardly believe it. But don't forget, there are those all around you throughout the world this morning that not, don't even battle. They don't even see it and know it's true enough that they ought to believe it. You know why you wish you believed it more? It's because you do believe it. Do you understand that? You know why you're struggling with your faith? Because you have faith to struggle with. Look at it from that side once in a while and get up off your doldrums and get your eyes off yourself. In fact, the more you witness to others, the less you'll have that battle. The more you see what a pitiful state the rest of the world is in when you talk about the gospel to them, the more confident you'll be in the gospel. Some of you are so caught up with your own private little psychological struggles, you haven't told anybody about the Lord Jesus with any confidence in years. And the result, you spend most of your time looking at you and seeing how you're doing and you don't like what you see and it gets you in the doldrums. You're up and down and mostly down. I suggest to you, you can get to know some people that don't have the hope you have, nor the struggle you have, nor the knowledge you have. And then thank God that you know enough to struggle and you know enough to wish you'd believe better. The resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ is precious to those people like that because they look back to God and say, Lord, I don't feel it. I'm struggling with it. But I believe you, Lord. My life is in your hands. I've, I've suffered the loss of this other stuff. Lord, I'm not playing games. I'm not cutting corners. I'm not guarding myself. I'm not keeping my pleasures. I'm forsaking them. I'm going to do what the book says. Lord, don't forsake me. Don't forget your promises to me. But I want to talk to you too who it just hasn't come clean to you. you it hasn't dawned on you. My guess is that the reason that you can't feel it and you can't see it and you don't believe it is because it's going to cost you something the minute you do. I'm not fool enough to think you've not heard these things. I'm not fool enough to think you look at them and they don't strike you. I'm not fool enough to think your conscience doesn't prick you. Whenever you read about Jesus dying for sinners and Jesus rising from the dead and Jesus coming back to judge you, I'm not fool enough to think that something in you doesn't say, what about it? What about it? What are you going to do? What are you going to do about it? I know that comes into your mind. I know that you've been fighting hard to get it out. You're hoping it won't. You'd love to sleep through a sermon. You'd like to keep it from penetrating. You've learned. You've conditioned your system not to feel the depths of it. You're scared to weep over your sin. You're scared to humiliate yourself and repent. You don't want to admit that those that have told you about Christ were right. Your pride is too big. You don't want to lose some of the attachments you've gained for this world or some you hope to get. You're afraid if you give it all to Jesus, he'll hold out on you and you won't get some of the trees in the, in the garden. I'll just ask you this. When you lose your ability to taste that fruit and your teeth are gone and you can't chew it and all the stuff you've lived most of your life to get and probably haven't gotten yet, 
why you're not happy yet. When all that's gone, and the eternal God calls you into his presence as he is going to do, what are you going to do? What have you done and what are you doing to be equipped for that hour? How are you going to face the liability of your sins? God's wrath is going to punish your sins, all of them. God's wrath will not be satisfied till all your personal sins have burned in hell apart from his favor. And you have two choices. You may continue to pretend it isn't so. You may continue to try to make your own little private religion that gives your conscience freedom and hope to put it off and hope that the word of God is not exactly true and maybe the, the God's going to let you in out of sympathy or something. He'll not do it. You may continue to neglect or reject the claims of Christ on your life and perish under the wrath of God which will not be satisfied until eternity is past. Or, you may lose, take your grip off your life and off the world and loosen those fists that have clutched the things that are passing away and renounce your allegiance to everything you thought could make you happy and didn't and acknowledge before God that his son is God and is the man who died for your sins and fall at his feet and lay your life on him turn from your sins offer him yourself believe upon him and trust in him to save you and he will and that is where the wrath of God will be satisfied for you and there will be no more for you we were reconciled to God by the death of his son we shall be saved from wrath through his life he died to save sinners from their sins. That's the significance of his sufferings. Active, willing, voluntary, suffering, obedience. He finished it. He laid down his head after a full day's work and he got everything done that was on his agenda. And he's seated at the right hand of the Father with the finished work of redemption and he offers to everyone that will come a clean slate, a new heart, a, a clear record, everlasting peace and blessing in his presence. And other than those who come on his terms, there's nothing waiting but the fires of hell. May God give you grace to lay hold on Christ, not on you, not on your good works, not on your good intentions, not on your nice heart, not on the mitigating circumstances that maybe God will understand if you talk, but on Christ. May God give grace to open the hearts of many in this place, children and grown-ups alike, to believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. Let's bow. Well, our Father and our God, you have answered us in allowing us the privilege of preaching the gospel, of appealing to sinners like ourselves. Outside of grace, we now appeal to you, the God who saved us and who only is able to save anyone.
that you would for the sake of Christ add to his crown this morning jewels of glory O Lord our God do hear the prayers of your church and save poor sinners and teach us to understand more fully the significance of his sufferings thank you O Lord for what you endured for us help us O God to be true to you hear us our Father crown the saving work of Christ by adding to his company today for we ask it in his name Amen